Oh, I was going to say uh, rotary telephones. I was around for those, and they had charm. You could really express yourself by the way you dialed a number on a rotary telephone. There's a, there was a music to it that um, that I was miss. that the one that goes like this. Yeah. Ah, uh, I remember those. You were around for those? Yeah, see, they were great. They should bring them back. I'd like one on my mobile phone. When I say I remember those, I remember going into an antique store and seeing one of those. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that burns. So what are we doing today? We're doing something a little different. We, we both went away. Uh, we're going to see how this works out as maybe an ongoing thing. We went away and found some things about books, reading and writing, etc., cetera, uh, that we found interesting. We're going to talk about those one after the other. So I was thinking, you know, we could yeah, call this so- bookends and odds or bookends and oddities. What about that? Yeah, I do like that. Bookends and oddities, see? That's a little bit of uh, brainstorming live on tape. Where should we begin? I think (laughs) I came to the table with an article that popped up on my phone from The Economist and it was titled, The Business of Mining Literary Estates is Booming. And I scrolled a bit through that and it was very interesting. And did you get a chance to read that article, Gareth? I did. I did. I am prepared. Uh, tell me about it, though. Imagine I hadn't read it. Uh, what, what would you say about it? Uh, I'll read the first paragraph because I found it very humorous. Quote, Lord Byron intended to publish his memoir, but his literary executor burned it instead. T.S. Eliot is thought never to have wanted songs made about his cats. Terry Pratchett, a British fantasy writer, had imagination. His former assistant honoured Pratchett's wish to have a steamroller crush a hard drive containing the author's unfinished stories. (laughs) Roald Dahl, author of dark, delightful children's tales, might have done something equally drastic had he known scriptwriters would conjure up a teenaged Willy Wonka. Dahl, who died in 1990, detested the first film made of his Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It is hard to imagine him cheering its prequel, Wonka, which will be released in December. And I suppose that is gives a good cover of what this article goes on to discuss, and it talks about how there's such a hunger in these online streaming services to get their hand on content and keep producing content to the point that there seems to be no new material for them to get their fingers on or into, and so they're now mining all these old literary states, as we've seen with Roald Dahl. I think that sold for $700 million to Netflix giant. Yeah, look, I'm going to give Netflix props, though. Um, The first few short films they've done of his work have been really excellent. I, I would recommend them. Um, they're done by, uh, oh, what's his name? They were done by Wes Anderson and they were done in Anderson's uh, signature style, which is very staged, uh, very f- sort of flat. And, uh, yeah, they feel very um, readily, I suppose. 
Uh, and yeah, I watched the, the whole lot. I was going to just watch one to fill in some time. Uh, what, cause I had a spare 15 minutes and the first one I found was 17 minutes. If I could go over by two, uh, and, and then, yeah, then I just ended up spending quite a long time watching the whole lot. And they're, they're really, really good. So, I mean, you know, that's a good outcome. I'm less convinced. I noticed in this article, we have a quote, consider Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, a film released this year in which Pooh and Piglet, A.A. Milne's lovable, nearly 100-year-old characters become bloodthirsty killers. So, yeah, that's a, that's a strange thing, isn't it? Are you, are you familiar with that, Pooh? Are uh, you a Pooh person? I think we're all familiar with Pooh on a daily basis, hopefully. But I <laughs> have not read. I remember watching the film Winnie the Pooh, um, and I found it interesting that apparently there's a scene where Christopher is jumping off a log, and Disney used that same um, drawing or imagery for Jungle Book. So there's a oh. lot of um, reused images. Okay. Yeah, um, when Mowgli is jumping down, but. That's neither here nor there. And um, I was watching a movie last night with uh, Luke and Patrick and on Netflix there was something called The Cocaine Bear, which Mm -hmm. is meant to be a horror of a bear who gets into a sack of cocaine and starts rampaging and killing people. Maybe it's a good idea that we're trying to mine literary estates because no one seems to be coming up with great horror ideas except for a cocaine guzzling bear. <laughs> yeah, that's probably not not one of the better ones. Actually, uh, well, I'll, I'll give a shout out to Ty West. I think he is coming up with great uh, horror ideas. Um, uh, he's done a bunch of good films. His latest two are X, and uh, and the prequel to that, Pearl which I think he wrote with the star Mia Goth. Very good. Very good. Uh, So get into those folks um, after you listen to this podcast. But, yeah, I don't know about Pooh. I mean, I love Pooh. I hope this doesn't get sampled. I do love Pooh and and Piglet. Uh, And, yeah, there's something unsettling about the idea of their – I mean, clearly it's it's, – there's an intention – you know, to, to mind some comedy with them being completely opposite to the way they are. But um, I don't know, you know, it's it's fine as a sort of think, oh, yeah, that's pretty funny. But can you make a film out of it? Is it, is it that funny? Is it sustainably funny? Pooh drenched in blood. Um, <laughs> this all just sounds wrong. You know, uh, yeah, Piglet with a, with a hatchet. I don't know. I, I'm not sure you'll get 90 minutes of joy out of that. But what are you going to do? I mean, a lot of this has to do with um, copyright uh, and estates, you know, running to the end of their copyright. We talked about that in our uh, censorship episode. Yeah, we did. We've talked about Dahl extensively, so definitely go check out those podcasts. Actually, I want to keep reading some sections from this article. Mm -hmm. Quote, Yet Dahl's legacy represents a new twist in the tale. 
Huge sums paid in 2021 for his estate by Netflix, a streaming service, have helped spur a gold rush to mine dead authors' estates. Once it was intrusion by Snoopy biographers that worried writers most. Today, it is the temptation among heirs to monetize every shred of creative output. Authors have long tried to control what happens to their works after they die and mostly failed. Yeah, yeah, well, they give it their best, don't they? I mean, I suppose the the ethics of all this is is interesting, for sure. But there are, um, you know, there are traditions within within literature that that this is not threatening at all. Uh, I noticed there's a right near the end of the article. I will not. a spoiler here trickiest of all are so-called continuation continuation novels such as julia a brilliant recent retelling of george orwell's 1984 from a feminist perspective traditionalists who might accept a new treatment of a classic in another medium often bridle at books that appear to change the intellectual legacy of a great author now i you know i don't see how Julia does change the intellectual legacy of, of Orwell's work. I mean, obviously, it's a response to it. Um, but, you know, in, in literature, Harold Bloom would say in literature, you know, there are strong readings and those readings are new books. And sometimes those books uh, overwhelm their precursors. Uh, and he always cites the great example of how critics today read Chaucer in relation to Shakespeare, even though Shakespeare came much, much later. Um, so I don't know. Is Julia a threat to 1984? What do you What do you think? It's a good question. And to me, the purpose of 1984 is creating that atmosphere of we're not in control of or there's a greater power in control, so them versus us, and then the erasure of the past. So in a sense, creating Julia, if it is acting as an erasure of 1984, I would have an issue with the whole purpose of the book. But if it's just 1984 rewritten from a feminine perspective with a female character, I don't see that um, being controversial to his intent for that novel. Yeah, I mean, I, I just don't think it threatens it at all. Um, you know, 1984 was Orwell's response to uh, We. Uh, and I love We as well. I love Pooh and I love We. We by uh, Yevgeny Zamyan, uh, the Russian novelist. Um, uh, Orwell read uh, We and was so taken by it, he wanted to write uh, a variation of it. And that became 1984. Um, now, it's true that a lot of people who like 1984 are not aware of we, but I think that isn't so much because uh, Orwell wrote 1984. I think it's because Russian sci-fi is often overlooked. Uh, so, but again, you've got now you've got this this uh, this genealogy of of we 1984 Julia. Um, and who knows how the three books impact each other and what reflections they have between each other and the sort of house of mirrors that they make up 
But I actually think it's uh, it's a really healthy thing. And, I, and, and ultimately, you know, b- because we believe that creativity is, is sparked by a sort of almost genetic genius that, you know, or, or God whispering in our ear or whatever it is, uh, the idea that books are, you know, always reactions to other books isn't a popular idea, but I think that's exactly the truth of it. Uh, or certainly texts are always responses to other texts. So I don't think, I mean, just in the case of Julia, I don't see where, I don't see a problem with Julia. I think, um, I think Julia is a good thing. Yeah. I think there must be distinction because I remember feeling very up in arms about Penguin Random House making edits to Roald Dahl's work and then republishing his stories. But then I suppose I don't have so much of an issue with Wonka being introduced following the story of the young Willy Wonka taking on the chocolate cartel. I think that's the premise of that film. So there must be, I think, yeah, you're talking about the continuation piece there. Yeah, I agree. Wonka's not a problem. New stories from old stories. Yeah, if you're creating new stories from old stories, there there is no danger to the old stories. If anything, um, you know, people it will make people aware of those older stories and it sort of houses them within the tradition. And that's you know, I, I don't see any of that as a problem. I agree. Editing text, we, you know, as, as we talked about in our in our two censorship podcasts, the editing of these texts seems. A very to be a very obvious uh, cultural mistake, uh, and you know I think uh, it's important for for people to have a sense of history, and and really I, I think if you want to have an introduction to a book that deals with cultural sensitivities, I think that's that seems like a perfectly fine thing to do, um, but. Yeah, I mean, once you start doing these edits, it just snowballs, and they found that with the James Bond novels. So that you know, they live and let die. They dealt with a lot of the um, racism towards black people, but left in all the racism towards Korean people. So, you know, by the time you take it all out and make sure you know everything is just so and inoffensive, what do you have left? Yeah. And then I, it seems like we agree that the continuation of creating more material or content from past work is okay. What happens if AI does it? Well, I guess, I mean, you know, if there are AI creations in the world for people to consume, that seems, uh, seems to be neither here nor there. Um, I think the ethics around it, uh, to do with different things. I just want to say one more thing about the uh, the edits, though. Consider the following, listeners. Mein Kampf, Hitler's nasty little book. Well, it's not little, actually. It's a bloody brick. I wouldn't call it little. Yeah. yeah. His nasty large lump of brick, uh, you know, um, in which he outlines his views on things. Should that be edited to make it? you know, more acceptable, you know, uh, I, I would assume that would not be considered a good thing. And the argument would be, well, no, you know, if, 
if everyone finds it deeply offensive, maybe they'll stop reading it and it'll disappear, and that would be perfectly fine. If that's true and these other books are so offensive that they're unreadable in their intended form, perhaps they should disappear from history. You know, it's kind of a creative natural selection. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm very comfortable, um, you know, reading quote-unquote offensive material uh, and understanding its historical context and the fact that writers are flawed and, uh, you know, and that we do tend to whitewash history anyway. Um, but really, if it, is, if it is that much of a problem, then these books will just sink, right? And that's what will happen. And inevitably, you know, most things do. Like, it'll be interesting to see what, you know, the canon of literature looks like in 500 years and how many books we're aware of are still considered to be canonical. I'm just enamoured with this idea of Mein Kampf being edited to make it more agreeable to a general audience. I don't know how you would even do that. Or 120 <laughs> Days of Sodom by Marquis de Sade. I mean, what, what are you going to do? Like, there'd be nothing left. Uh, it'd just be like a sentence I wrote this yeah. at some point. You know, can't be done. I was here in 1800s. <laughs> Yeah, because, you know, ultimately readers do dictate uh, what what rises and falls in literature and obviously these edits are meant to uh, in some way um, avoid that happening, avoid that kind of natural selection. Um, but I suspect they won't uh, because, you know, even in edited form, you know, if if – if the author's views, and particularly, you know, in, in this era now where identity politics is, is so pronounced, you know, you can know, you can see a lovely version of James Bond in which, you know, Bond is a feminist and not at all a racist and, you know, maybe not even a killer. Uh, but you know that Fleming intended him to be that. And will that become a problem? You know, where you think, wow, this book's fine now, but I know that author's a bit rubbish, isn't he? So I'm not going to read it anyway. You know, uh, I think there's the um, what is being hoped for is that people will forget the past, and that's such a dangerous thing. Definitely, and again, I'm captured with this image of James Bond being a gardener trying to exterminate. Uh, uh, aphids from his garden and that's the extent to which he kills something yeah yeah exactly i mean you know again when we talked about this a few a few weeks back or a few months back i don't know when it was um you know the the the, the point was that fleming didn't make bond to be a good guy uh fleming was not homophobic at all but Bond was. <laughs> so, you know, and so you do run into this uh, this problem. Um, and I, I think it is mired in identity politics that, that authors are their creations and they're not. Um, so I think that's another issue. And that actually that actually does. I know, I know you segued into AI before very neatly, it must be said. Uh, but then I wrecked it. But fortunately, I have a, a segue um, 
into AI that I think is really interesting. Um, so back in 2016, um, Google grabbed together a huge number of works. I can't remember how many it was. Um, 183,000 books, if you're referring to the same article. I'm referring to a different article, um, but I think it's the same experiment. They took an enormous number of authors. Um, Let's see if I can actually find it. The one thing they don't seem to be saying is how many texts, but I think it was 11,000. Is that correct? I don't know the article that you're referring to, but I picked up one in the Atlantic where um, Meta and Bloomberg paid people to take the data of 191,000 books and put them into a trained generative AI system, and it's called Books 3. Books 3. Yeah. Okay, well, this was an earlier thing. Um, But what was interesting was so they got these samples and what they were hoping to do was to take dead authors and see if they could predict predict what the next line of their texts might be, unfinished texts. Uh, but it was all built around the idea that authors have distinct personalities and that those personalities are always clearly represented in their work and consistently represented in their work. Um, and, you know, they, they didn't end up with much uh, in my opinion. Do you mean by distinct personalities, distinct styles of writing? Not well, the they were seeing them the as author? personalities. Like, you know, if you could get Mark Twain sitting down in front of you and go, okay, what was the next line of this story? Uh, Mark Twain as an AI persona would tell you in his distinctive voice. Um, but, you know, that's okay. not the way people write. They don't write the way they talk. Um, and they, what they were thinking they could use this for was having um, kind of avatars, I think, where you could type stuff in and it would be translated into how Shakespeare would say it. And that's probably a more likely outcome. Um, but that was a very early thing. That was back in February 2016. Uh, and then... Uh, there's a there's a great article I found uh, in the Boston Globe uh, from the 21st of May this year, uh, and it's entitled "Will GPT Pseudo Write or Anthropic Complete Great Authors' Unfinished Works?" Uh, it's a fascinating article. I recommend people read it. But it basically, um, you know considers this question for for authors that have left unfinished works. Could AI, you know, take these works, uh, analyse them and and somehow complete them? So I guess the question is, do you think it's possible? And then the second question is, do you think it should happen? Do you think it's possible? Because I know you've done a lot of work and you, in fact, reproduced someone else's work for your thesis using, as said, Roland Barthes and was it Palm Springs? Uh, Poodle Springs, yeah, AI but that, that was a... Would it not... Well, yeah, I mean, that that is, that is something I did um, uh, as a research project many, many years ago. Uh, I took Poodle Springs, which... Um, 
yeah, was was Raymond Chandler's take on Palm Springs, and he, he'd written four chapters of that novel. It would have been, I think, the eighth uh, Philip Marlowe novel, uh, and he got four chapters in, and then he passed away. Uh, and many years later, on the hundredth um, anniversary of his uh, birth, Robert B. Parker completed the novel um, with what I think it would be fair to say were mixed results. So I, I was very energised by this question, like, you know, could it have been done better, like objectively? Um, and uh, at the time I wasn't particularly looking at Poodle Springs. I was looking at all kinds of other books like The Mystery of Edwin Drood by Charles Dickens and so forth. Um, but what grabbed me about Poodle Springs is it had been completed and in a, in a relatively celebrated way. Many critics thought it was brilliant, uh, whereas others thought it was really terrible. Um, and so that one just seemed like a good one to work with because I could compare uh, what I came up with against uh, Robert B. Parker's uh, efforts. And so to, to do that, I didn't look at it. Raymond Chandler's personality, because that would be, I'm sorry, Google, but that would be stupid. What I did do uh, is use um, Bart's uh, reading analysis, which he uh, devised in S. Said, um, which, which attempts an incredibly close reading, like really close, really close. Uh, and uh, Bart, on the, this first attempt, came up with five codes. Uh, a code of actions, a code of questions and answers, a code of references, a code of semantic or connoted meanings, and a code of symbolism. Uh, and and basically, his reading he does a reading of a um, of uh, a short novel uh, called Sarazine by Honoré de Balzac, um, and he. He produces so many annotations across these five codes. It's much, much, much larger than the original work. A um, little bit like it might remind you of uh, House of Leaves. It's, it's all annotations with a little text in the centre. Um, but it's extraordinary what he pulled out. Uh, but what Bart said, and, and what I think is is... Um, absolutely true, is that what he pulls out is his reading, not the book, um, because we all have different readings. We all have different uh, degrees of cultural knowledge. As time goes by, um, connoted meaning shifts um, because of cultural contexts and, and also um, you know, sexual identity and age and all those things. Um, the, the, the close reading you might do uh, of uh, Sarazine at the age of 30 is likely to be somewhat different to the one you do at the age of 60. Nevertheless, uh, what you get from doing all this is this kind of map, and it's a mapping context. So you start to see how, for example, Chandler does use a lot of references to courtly love. Uh, and I would have said from reading the first four chapters of Poodle Springs that he didn't have any in there. 
But when you read it really slowly, you break it down into what Barthes calls lexias, which are just sort of little fragments of sentences. Um, I actually found quite a few, and and the way they related to uh, various other sort of cultural references, there were shapes to it, which was which was very interesting. Uh, the the questions and answers the the uh, put all through the text. Questions are raised without you without there being a question mark. Um, these led to a certain kind of uh, well. I'm going to be tricky. Barthes would call this a hermeneutic shape. And essentially what I found was I I did see that there was a shape to the story, even though it was a very small fragment. I could see a little bit beyond it as to where it was likely to go based on my reading. So in other words, um, the shape of my reading, this incomplete reading, I could project the rest of the shape. And so when I started trying to write uh, like Chandler, uh, what, I, what I discovered, uh, much to my shock actually, is that I could write like him effortlessly. Um, I hadn't expected that. I thought, I thought it would be a much more um, laborious process. But, you know, because you know very well, Shannon, I'm a slow writer. Um, it's like squeezing blood out of a stone with me. But when I wrote as Chandler, I was doing a chapter a day. Uh, and these were, these were what I submitted for my thesis. I didn't edit them at all. Um, and over the years when I've been teaching writing classes, uh, I'll, I'll talk about this in passing and I'll give people examples of Chandler's work, Parker's work, and my work, and it's all sort of anonymized. And it's interesting how people will swear up and down that the stuff I wrote is definitely Chandler. Sometimes they Chandler's own work, they go, no, nah, it's not Chandler, uh, which is which is interesting. Um, and certainly Poodle Springs was a first draft and a first draft of a man who was ill. Um, and it's it's not his best work. Uh, and there are there are inconsistencies in it, um, but nobody whatsoever ever seems to think that what Parker wrote is anything like what Chandler wrote. Uh, and I would agree on a naive level, looking at it, think that this is not the same at all. Uh, but it's interesting to understand why. So yes, I think you can break a text down and establish a sort of a stylistic pattern, a pattern of questions and answers that, that when you add them all up often lead to one big question that has a sort of an inevitable answer because the way the others have been answered. Uh, and so I think you could predict something that would be very like what the author intended, but it wouldn't be what they would have done because there's, there's too much... Uh, there's just too much nuance in the, in the moment to moment of writing, but yeah, I, I think AI would be would be capable of that if the people programming it had a a more um, sophisticated approach than the one they seem to have now. What they what they seem to be doing now by just feeding in books that isn't going to work. I'm very confident of that. So my first answer is no, they're not going to be able to complete any unfinished masterpieces the way they're going.
but they could, I think. Yeah, I'm just thinking maybe the missing piece is because I'm assuming it's these tech guys who are feeding it, but unless you have read a significant amount of books and understand uh, literary techniques and styles, how would you teach AI how to appreciate those little things to come up with something, to come up with that next sentence or to come up with a continuation novel of, uh, let's say, a James Bond. Maybe that's what's missing. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, if you uh, – I presumably if you explained how Bart's five codes worked and gave, it, and gave AI examples of how they're applied, it could attempt something like that. I do yeah. wonder, though – whether it would be it would it would have the same results because you know you're feeding in so much information in, into these um, AI AI machines and, and certainly one of the criticisms of AI is that it becomes an echo chamber of misinformation as well uh, and there isn't uh, you know a great deal of oversight so a bit like feeding in all of literature into into um, an artificial intelligence. I actually don't think that will make it smarter in terms of being able to comprehend an individual incomplete text. Yeah, too much white noise, I think is what I'm saying. So I suppose we can assuage people's fear about um, writing novels getting taken over by AI. Well, no, I mean, not really. Um, there's, uh, you know, The Death of an Author, um, which was the novel written by three chatbots and the fella, um, can't remember his name, but, you know, who cares? He, he sort of pieced them together. Um, and that was the first published AI novel uh, last year, I think, or maybe it was earlier this year. Apparently it's really bad. I, I think it was described as a poor man's Dan Brown. Good God, what does that mean? Um, <laughs> well, Dan Brown has sold millions of copies. <laughs> he has, he has. I've just been a snob. I think we're a way off uh, AI writing work of genuine literary merit, if indeed that is really possible. But I guess, you know, even if it happens, obviously there will be some pressure, you know, if you can produce lots and lots of um, entertaining, insightful books without having to pay authors, I could see publishers liking that. But I think a lot of publishers wouldn't like it as well because there is, you know, this idea that... um, that books are responses to other books and that we are through the literary canon and the things that uh, should be in the canon, uh, we are sort of mapping the development of the human race and the human consciousness and our sensibilities. And, yeah, I think a lot of publishers would sort of be, would balk at abandoning that project, which, you know, I think is the underlying project of publishing. Uh, but also, um, you know, if you want to write a book, AI can't stop you. So, indeed, that there may be more competition, but there's already so much competition now that 
you know, I don't, I don't think it'll make that big a difference. And yeah, if you're a writer, don't feel threatened by AI because you can write. Uh, and you know, the AI can't stop you. Wow, wouldn't it be scary if it could? <laughs> yeah, but that's not going to happen. Start reading Julia in 1984. Well, 1984 is a good one for that sort of thing. Yeah, I haven't read Julia. I must admit. Um, although I, I'm now. Neither have I. I actually hadn't heard of it until today. It'd be interesting. I really enjoyed We. Yeah, We's good, isn't it? It deals so with a AI, whole different aspect of of what is now the present, but what was the future? People in glass houses with no no privacy, no sort of sense of individualism. And the ticketing sexual partner system, I found that very interesting. And I think the whole premise is that they want to get beyond the wall and outside and that kind of, sorry, spoilers, that's how it happened. But I can't recall that happening in 1984. It was a, a turnaround, sad, sadder ending. Yeah, well, it's a very different book, isn't it? And um, one yeah, would hope very that, different. that Julie is a very different book. Um you know, if it's a sort of a, a a pretty faithful revision with a different slant, that seems quite a dull project. But I'm assuming no one would spend that much time on something like that, except maybe AI. But, yeah, one hopes that Julia would be something quite different. And talking about continuing works, because we've talked about AI being able to finish this next sentence of a lot of these famous authors. You mentioned Mark Twain. Have you heard of Robert Jordan before and the Wheel of Time series? Yeah, I've heard of him, but I haven't read it. Um, so what I found interesting, because when we were talking about this topic and I mentioned how Brandon Sanderson was requested by Robert Jordan's wife to finish the Wheel of Time series. I started this series when I was, I think he published the first one in 1990. So I've read this throughout my whole childhood. I think there's about 14 plus books in this series and they are thick. They're about a thousand, like a Lord of the Rings novel style length novel in each single one. So imagine that across 14 books. And Brandon Sanderson was not friends with Robert Jordan. He'd only heard of him or seen him at a convention once and he got approached by his wife to finish it and he was able to piece it together after giving all his notes. It took him five months to construct it. And the point that I find interesting is that Brandon Sanderson said that he taught himself how to write fantasy by reading Robert Jordan and then throughout that, he's now finished his series, which is a pretty epic um, story in itself. So what do you think about people finishing other people's work as a last request? Very different to getting your hard drive rolled over by a steam train, as in Terry Pratchett's example. Yeah, look, I think it's fine. It's an interpretation, Um, you know, and God knows 14 books in, there should be enough clues across those 14 books to be able to arrive at some sort of plausible 15th. Um, Yeah, I would imagine even without notes, uh, that would be doable. 
It's interesting. I mean, the two things I find really interesting is that uh, Jordan's wife wanted Sanderson, and I wonder why specifically him, um, particularly if he wasn't a fantasy writer. Um, and the, you know, if the well, Jordan I can project, read a quote from the interview. Yeah, please. Uh, so this interview was written by Dave Goldar. Uh, so it's Brandon Sanderson talking, quote, I saw him once at a convention, but I didn't know him. I saw him as a fan and he wouldn't have known me from Adam. He asked his wife, Harriet McDougall, to find someone to finish the series. And after he passed away, she went hunting. She considered something of a dying request. So she searched through a lot of fantasy authors. She hadn't heard of me, but she read my Mistborn series. She then called me up and asked me to do it. I didn't know I was being considered. It just came out of the blue. To be asked to finish the series was just astonishing and I wasn't expecting it. It was a little bit like winning the lottery when you haven't bought a ticket, but someone you love has to pass away before you can win. That's a lovely quote, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I really like that. Okay, so he was a fantasy writer. Yes, Brandon Sanderson was, and he – read Robert Jordan's books and he used that to help train him how to write fantasy books. And now he's incredibly prolific, Brandon Sanderson. Okay. Yeah. Well, again, uh, and this is the, um, and this is what I found with writing Chandler. Once I had, if you like the code down, uh, I could reproduce it over and over. And one creative decision because I didn't have the freedom of making my own choices in a sense. One creative decision leads to another almost inevitably. And the more creative decisions you make, the quicker it gets. Uh, and it, it's, yeah, it's, you hurtle along. It's uh, similar to uh, uh, what uh, Georges Perec said about, you know, the Ulipo school and, and, and applying constraints to your writing. Once you don't have that total freedom and you have to work within a pattern, it starts flowing. And, you know, Perec said of, uh, um, of a void, uh, La Disparition, uh, which is the book he wrote without the letter E in it, that it seemed to write itself. Uh, and, and I can, so it doesn't shock me that Sanderson suddenly can churn out these books, particularly if he's sort of, in a sense, digested the Robert Jordan code. Um, and I wonder whether his own books read somewhat like Robert Jordan now. I would guess they might. It's a good question because I've been recently reading Brandon Sanderson. He's very prosaic. It's very good to listen to on an audio book. I don't remember Robert Jordan being like that, but it's, it's probably been 10 years now since I read the last one. It was a lot more heavier and dense, I remember Robert Jordan being, but incredible world builder, incredible twisting plot. Um, but I think the writing style would have been a, a bit older. Well, it would be interesting. I mean, we could in a later podcast, I don't know what the listeners would think of this, but we could do an SZ-style analysis of some Robert Jordan and compare it to Sanderson's Uh, 15th, it was the 15th, right? 15th book in this series. 
It was meant to be so big that Robert Jordan said they would have to invent a new binding system. But after talking to the publishers, uh, Brandon Sanderson convinced them to split them into three volumes. But that was the final one. And apparently he, Robert Jordan himself, wrote the final chapter. So that is still in the final book because he knew how it's going to end. Ah, okay. So what would be very – how long are the chapters? Are they – do you recall? These are, they are quite- huge, Gareth. Each book is a 1,000 pages. I – couldn't recall off the top of my head. Okay. Well, so it would be interesting maybe to do, uh, to look at the last, say, two pages of Sanderson's contribution leading into the final two pages of that. I'm oh, sorry, into the first two pages of that final chapter by Jordan. Because uh, you can pick up all kinds of things quite quickly and see where, where things um you know, mirror each other neatly and, and where there are sort of discordant notes. Uh, that, would, that could be quite interesting, actually. Um, but I'll let you think about it because that's the sort of thing that would interest me. It might be uh, some sort of podcasting suicide. I don't know. Uh, but, yeah, I think it would be interesting to look into that further. I, and I guess so, so we've sort of got this – I definitely don't think it's a problem – for someone to finish another person's work. Um, And I don't think it's a problem really if AI is used to do that either. Um, Because, again, you know, there's not going to be an authoritative final word on these questions. Uh, And even if there is, in a hundred years' time, people will look at them and go, well, this is deeply offensive. We're going to have to edit the hell out of all of these books. Uh, and so they'll change again, apparently. Uh, but, but, yeah, in, in general, how do you feel about the ethics of, I guess, because we've talked about two sort of ethically uh, thorny topics, the ethics of AI and, um, and legacy, I suppose, and and the development of a brand beyond the author's life. Are you, are you in general very comfortable with it or not particularly comfortable with it? What what do you think of the the major, um, you know, the major sort of crisis points, if any? I always struggle with questions of ethics because I, especially when I'm on the spot, because I always feel like I have to go away and think about it. And now that we've talked a bit more about obviously anything. So we love the author Yoko Ogawa. We're going to be reviewing her book Revenge on our next podcast. But when I'm writing, I like to think about her and I like even, um, Mariana Enriquez, I'm so inspired by her style. And sometimes when I sit down, I try to write very similar to her. And I think it's in any course of a writer's journey, you first, you don't copy, but you emulate those that inspire you until you kind of get all the pieces together and you develop your own style. And when you think about that, what is the issue then with AI doing the exact same thing? In this Atlantic article where they talked about taking 191,000 books that were used without permission to train gen- generative AI systems, but isn't that what we all do? Don't we all take 
can we say that these books were used without permission when they're readily available out in the world? Yeah, I think I th- actually think we can uh, because the, the difference is, so if you look at um, Agawa or Enrique, you know, they are what they know and their sensibilities, um, you know, are, are profound things. But, but part of that is what they don't know. You know, what what makes great literature is what isn't said as much as what is said. You know, all the silences, all the things that could have been that that weren't. Uh, and as a you know, and again, if you imagine authors all responding to each other, they're responding to a bit of a gown, a bit of Enrique, you know, chuck in some Charles Dickens and for some reason Poodle Springs will throw those things together and you get something different. Where I think AI becomes problematic is that it knows everything, essentially. Uh, And so those sort of silences, those ignorances, which are are part of what makes text special, they're not likely to be at play. Uh, And I think that perhaps the greatest danger, as they attempt to make AI literature is that it will create a deep homogeny in literature in that we have objectively arrived at what good writing is. And that would not be a good outcome because that will be the death of writing. So I guess the only thing that would potentially one day, probably not in our lifetimes, be a threat to emerging writers is this idea that there is good writing and we can identify it. It's exactly like the latest AI book. And if you can write like that, you're a good writer. I think that will suck the soul out of what is actually occurring in literature, which is a series of imperfect responses that that fly off in all kinds of dizzying directions. But I feel like we already do that to a certain extent. Any writing course that you want to do online will be like, hey, this is how you write, or you can buy a book from a bookstore that says, hey, this is how you write a bestseller, and it gives you examples of apparently what the best is. And they're all terrible. even publishes them control. Yeah. I mean, they're terrible for lots of reasons, but, but they're also wrong. Because it changes. But then I, the, the issue I'm having in terms of the morality aspect of this is taking these books used without permission to train generative AI. Well, that's more because it's a property and there's money involved with it. And so the permission would I mean, imply you some can money buy changing the book. hands. Yeah, but, but the AI is not, it's not a sentient being, it's a product. It's, you know, it's like I, uh, I create a database and I fill it with books that I didn't buy. I pulled it off the internet and, you know, and said, this is my uh, repository of fiction and I can take random lines out, put them together, and so can you. I've got a, you know, uh, a randomizer so you can start creating literature. The the owners of the intellectual property would come and knock and saying, well, if you're going to use my stuff, you got to pay me some money. So I think that's the, ethic, 
the ethical issue is that essentially they've stolen these works. And it's not that they've read them, it's that they've placed them in a product, which presumably they will then exploit for money. So I think that's the ethical issue with that. But a broader, I mean, you know, a broader problem, in my opinion, is that you want literature to be surprising. You want it to develop in different ways, and those will be imperfect ways, and they won't be consistent. And if they were consistent, how boring would that be? You know, the, the, the next step on the path of consistency is homogeny. Uh, and that would be a very sad thing, I think. Uh, but again, I, you know, I'm not convinced by AI uh, as it currently exists. Um, I don't think that's the, I don't think it's even close to being able to do the things people hope and or fear it will one day be able to do. Which is not to say it won't, but it doesn't seem like it's really all that close. And the limitations of the people um, building it, uh, you know, in terms of their knowledge, sensibilities and so forth, kind of uh, allows for that imperfection, which is probably a good thing, really. Okay, well, I don't then have anything else to add to your question, Gareth. (laughs) Well, yeah. Except the only thing would be if... Your fear is that everything will become homogenous. I think humans are very fickle creatures and as soon as we realise something is the done thing, we purposely go out to create something else and something different, something avant-garde. And I think that continual push and pull will continually happen, even with AI creating the apparent perfect text. I think you're right, actually. That, that That does seem like the sort of thing that would happen. Assuming, of course, we don't uh, give up our desire to produce things. Um, and I, th- I do think that there has been a trend over the past century, uh, an accelerating trend of people shifting from producers to consumers. Um, I mean, we're described as a consumer society. It'll be a very sad day when that is absolutely true. So hopefully that won't be the case, which is why, again, you know, if you're worried about AI novels, go and write one, produce one yourself. Uh, And, you know, it may not be perfect. It may not be what Chatbot would have done, but uh, it'll have its own charms and it'll be part of that big conversation of ocean of voices that makes up literature and art more generally. Well, I think that was a good way to wrap up Gareth then thank you for the conversation I was also fascinated by the different turns that that took uh definitely like and subscribe if you enjoyed this kind of different style of chatting and talking and even come to us with some ideas and we can also have a little rant on those and next fortnight I'm so excited for revenge, revenge. so excited for revenge by Yoko Gower. And I'll see you then when we drop in and have a chat about that, Gareth and everyone. I look forward to it. Bye. Bye.